Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Frank Talbot. And me, Chris Slowly. Today on the show, we have Aberdeen's Hugh Young, one of the most successful Asian equity investors of the past 30 to 40 years. He was there pretty much before it became a viable investment for many. Chris, what did you think of the podcast? I thought it was great. I've spoken to Hugh a few times. I always find him very jovial, very open, very honest, which is really important for this, I guess. And also, like you said, I mean, he has been a huge presence in the European and Asian market for such a long time. He's been out there. I think he makes reference to it for three, maybe four decades. He's done a lot, and that means he's seen a lot. And I thought, I, I might disagree, I felt he was really open with what he felt had gone wrong. Yeah, very open. I would say that Hugh is probably one of the most risk-averse managers I've ever spoken to. And he said to us, he's very wary of all investments, but even he uh, has made mistakes. I thought it was really interesting because he basically, and this is from running slightly, so I'm conscious of that, his best and his worst investments are very similar. So he talks about those sort of fine margins. That's what stood out to me. Timing, I know we always talk about market timing, you can't time the market, but he does look at, well, hindsight's amazing, but you can look back on when was the right time to be in it, when was the right time to sell. And again, he's got a lot of experience in that area. I thought, yeah, I think he's a really fascinating guy who who, who is not afraid to make himself look a little bit silly in the sense that he's willing to be honest about what happened. He's also got a fantastic speaking voice, such dulcet tones. Uh, but, but before we get into it, and you can appreciate that for yourselves, we need to introduce our new segment, It Could Be Worse, with Jamie Catherwood. Does it count as new when, when it's three episodes deep? I think so. I think we got, we've got one, one more, I'd say, and then, it, and then it's established. Okay, so our newest segment. Uh, he details the perils of chasing something that's too good to be true and also introduced me to the term carnival barker. Were you aware of this before? I, that's the one word in my notes, is carnival barker. I, I've heard it before. It's sort of the P.T. Barnum, bigger-than-life personality trying to get people in. So Exactly. Yeah, let's the people go, you know, roll up, roll up, feast your eyes on the wonders of whatever it is that they're introducing. Sorry, that was a terrible Who impression. Who would guess someone like that would end up with something uh, fraudulent? Let's, let's see how that pans out. The next terrible investment is the Keeley Perpetual Motion Machine. An 1899 San Francisco Chronicle article called John W. Keeley's Perpetual Motion Machine, the greatest fraud of the century. Why? John Kelly was supposedly an inventor, but began his career as a carnival barker, a role which is entirely reliant upon one's ability to draw in crowds using stories and showmanship. That experience proved invaluable when Keeley announced his newest invention in 1872, the Perpetual Motion Machine. According to him, this Keeley motor provided a new form of low-cost energy and could fuel a round-trip train journey from New York to San Francisco using just one quart of water. The 19th century was filled with revolutionary inventions like the telegraph, railroads, etc. Keeley attracted investors with his confidence and seemingly endless scientific knowledge. In truth, however, Keeley had zero scientific background or experience. To the average person, though, Keeley's scientific jargon made him seem like a sophisticated scientist. However, skeptics noted that Keeley was inconsistent with his jargon. One day he'd call his machine a vibratory generator, and then two days later he might call it a hydropneumatic pulsating vacuum engine. Sounds sciencey. Keeley drew so much attention that shares of the Keeley Motor Company were even floated on the stock exchange, and he raised the equivalent of $100 million in today's values. For 26 years, however, Keeley strung along investors without ever launching a finished product. The reason for that was simple. He did not have any invention to bring to market. He and his machine were complete frauds. 
Keeley's contraption was just sophisticated enough to fool people who witnessed his presentations, but the machine was nothing but smoke and mirrors. After Keeley's death, investigators discovered that all the force allegedly created by Keeley's machine was in fact powered by an air compressor hidden beneath the floorboards. Shares of Keeley Motor Company had risen from $50 to $300 while he was alive and then crashed back down to $7 once it was discovered that he was a fraud. Luckily for Keeley, the truth only came to light after he had died. Upon his passing, investigators scoured his laboratory in search of the facts and quickly discovered his nefarious trickery. Thanks very much for that, Jamie. Before we start the main event here, big thanks to Hugh for joining us from his holiday. I think if anyone deserves a break, it's Hugh Young after 37 years in the same job. So without further ado, here is Hugh Young. So Hugh, thank you for joining us. If we can get to the the meat of the matter, what is your biggest investment mistake and what did you do about it? Uh, well, the biggest investment mistake uh, I, I made, which is a painful one, uh, was an investment in, in, in one company called Satyam Computers um, that had a spectacular blow-up in the early 2000s after the chief executive and founder declared that he'd been riding a tiger, according to his letter, uh, and that the billions in cash uh, that we thought were there on the balance sheet uh, turned out to be completely fake, uh, despite having been audited by Price Waterhouse in India. So that was a an extremely painful experience. Uh, uh, perversely, if 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 you'd ask me uh, the question of what's your best investment ever made, it would be the same answer: uh, Satyam Computers at. I bought in in the mid '90s uh, when it was a fifty million dollar company. Having seen uh, the aforementioned founder in Hyderabad uh, when he was doing data processing for Dun and Bradstreet, and we thought this was an interesting story in India outsourcing IT services, uh, and and we popped it in uh, our smaller companies fund, uh, uh, today's uh, Aberdeen Asia Focus Investment Trust, and it went up a hundredfold. We then sold it uh, when when tech companies became hugely overvalued in that tech boom at the end of the 90s. Uh, and, and the painful mistake was reinvesting in it uh, in the early 90, in the early 2000s. Um, after the the tech bubble had burst, I mean, it was a most painful mistake. Not, I mean, in part, obviously, in the money lost, but usually, with most of the mistakes we've made, we've learned something from that that we'd missed something in the accounts, uh, that we hadn't checked this, hadn't checked that, all all those types of things, and 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 that's and certainly we've made plenty of mistakes like that. But this time, uh, after we did the forensic uh, in the aftermath on it, it, it was very hard to spot where the mistake was. So you were totally, totally caught blind here. There's, there's no way you think you could have caught it, even in hindsight. Um, I didn't think so, because it had actually made a hell of a lot of improvements with the tech blow up in the early 2000s. It had improved its board, which was one of our issues. So, so governance prior to that, given it was a tiny company, um, had not been terribly strong, but they've brought in some heavy hitters uh, on the board for governance. Uh, there had been some related party transactions uh, prior to the tech blow-up, but again, uh, a, 
a lot of that had disappeared and it had professionalized considerably. So yes, I, I, I mean, I think in all fairness, it was very hard to see it coming. How can you safeguard against that then, Hugh? So it, were there lessons you could take from it? Are there certain now points that you can pick out or you've seen again and thought, well, I'm staying away from that because that's got a Satnam Contributors vibe to it? <laughs> Equally, have you, missed, have you missed good investments because you've been looking for those, those faults? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've certainly missed lots of things that have turned out well because we've, we've had worries. Um, I think on Satyam in, in, in particular, we, we draw a great blank uh, uh, that there's no particular lesson we learned from it because we went back. It wasn't as though they were obviously falsifying their profits with hindsight because the, the money didn't exist. But it wasn't like a, a Bernie Madoff uh, with, with steady increase in earnings. They'd had some quarters the earnings were ahead. Sometimes they disappointed things like that, so they weren't being directly used to, to manipulate a fantastic earnings record. And indeed, the core business of Satyam is still is still going strong today un, un, under new hands. If the founder ended up in jail, uh, but the underlying business was good. They just managed to siphon off, off, off money, unbeknownst to most, with the connivance of, uh, I think, the local accountants. Was this pre-Enron? It was post Enron. It would have been two thousand and ooh, I can't remember the the date precisely, but the early two thousands, a, a few years after. I, I think we bought back into it in about two thousand and one, two thousand two. So maybe it's two thousand and six. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm asking because obviously PwC took a look. They said it was fine. Do you think standards have improved post? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm afraid standards probably haven't improved because we've seen the wire cards and and, and so on. I mean, it's a perennial risk. Uh, I mean, if you have either complicit auditors, which might have been the case here, um, uh, or, or, or indeed just auditors not fully doing their job. So it's a perennial issue. The, the question I was going to ask you was slightly more personal, and if we, and hopefully this doesn't bring back distressing memories, but when you saw the, the riding, riding the tiger letter from the owner, do you remember how you felt? Do you remember, had you already realised that things weren't going well, or was that when the, the other shoe dropped? Also, did you understand what he meant by riding a tiger? <laughs> I, yes, it was fairly explicit when he talked about the money. And... <laughs> so, yes, that, that came across, across loud and strong. And we had worries, of course, because the share price wasn't performing well, which, which is a, a, a lead indicator. Um, you know, but it really fell off, fell off the edge of a cliff. We sold the stock immediately, rightly or wrongly, um, and that tends to be our policy when, when something completely left field happens. We sold it. It wasn't. I mean, it was a hit to the portfolios, but say it was at at the time one percent of portfolios. It wasn't a, a a massive percentage holding. It was just deeply embarrassing, always deeply painful, to take that sort of hit to portfolios. Conversely, it had made probably a good 10% or, or more for the portfolio it had been in in the late 90s. When we spoke at the start of last year, you said that throughout your career, you've learned from mistakes. And that wasn't some sort of early preparation to get you onto this podcast. I promise we don't plan that far ahead. But in terms of what measures have you put in place to safeguard against things like this? Is it diversification? Do you have different techniques that you've developed over time? 
Uh, yes, well, we've always had diversification. So, so across countries, across sectors, so that's been uh, been important. Uh, so we don't put all our eggs in one basket. So the 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 if you like the motherhood aspects uh, of, of of investment, we we certainly adhere to. Uh, the detail of our analysis, I think, when you look back or on on the early analysis we were doing, oh gosh, well, I've been I've been now in the job, coming up forty years in the in, in the same job. Thirty, I think it's thirty seven years in the same job, which is quite a long time. And luckily, my research notes from thirty seven years ago are, are not on our computer systems, thankfully, <laughs> because you'd find them woefully. <laughs> woefully inadequate and and how the research has built up over that time period and with a larger team that we uh, that that we have today has been from mistakes so it's been accounting issues governance issues industry challenges so we've learned from so many mistakes uh, which are, are reflected in what what we do today so so people coming in and investing with us today are hopefully spared uh, some of the mistakes we uh, would would have made in the past and have uh, are benefiting uh, from those mistakes and, and and that was the pain of satyam there was no benefit to us because we we couldn't actually identify a clear mistake that we'd made i was going to say i mean this is a, this is a tangent but stick with me hugh i've got two small kids and i asked my boss who's got two older kids i said does it get easier and he said it doesn't get easier they grow up and the challenges change. We've seen the Asian market improve, enhance. We've seen China become the big kid, so to speak. How has that changed the challenges for you as an investor in the Asian market with China now so prominent compared oh. to where it would have been 40 years ago? Well, the, the challenge for us is that the Asian markets are now huge. Um, so there's an awful lot to cover. And my goodness, where we're starting afresh today, uh, it, would, it would be a nightmare. So it's less of a challenge for us because we have been doing it for so long and we've had such a large team uh, that we've been able to get in comparatively on the ground floor of of, of most markets and and learn as the markets develop. Uh, China, as you rightly say, uh, is is the comparative new kid on the block. Um, And my goodness, has it gone gangbusters? And Have you got anything wrong there yeah, in the way that you've approached that as that's grown up? Uh, yes, in some senses. So, so a reflection of our due diligence, uh, issues with corporate governance, for example. We were slow to to invest in the uh, likes of Tencent, for example, which is, which is our core holding, uh, because we had uh, concerns over the this uh, sort of entity through which it's held which means that you don't actually directly hold the underlying company in china because it's uh, off limits uh, from china's uh, purposes so so you own a, a own a virtual entity offshore that's meant to mirror uh, and give you indirect ownership of the entity onshore but we've been very worried about people like uh, Jack Maher at Alibaba, who'd shifted a, a highly valuable part of Alibaba out into his own entity, you know, yeah, without any sanctions from shareholders of the offshore entity. So things like that, we were slow with them. I and mean, I think from a discipline and 
point of view, absolutely correctly slow with uh, getting comfort, uh, which in part was on, on the structure itself, but also in large part, given that one has to accept the structure in a place like China, more, more, more a comfort with the, the owners of the business uh, and, and, and whether they were honourable people who would honour uh, the understanding of the entity or not. And, and, and that's why it took a long time for us to make our, our first investment into Tencent. Um, um, would that we had just thrown caution to the winds, closed our eyes and jumped in. Uh, on, on, on China specifically, I mean, so you, you've, you've definitely mellowed there. Uh, yes, well, we've learned a lot more. We're, we're very wary of all investments, <laughs> wherever they are, because it's been like beware of Greeks bearing gifts. <laughs> we're always looking for what can go wrong rather than what can go right. It's particularly true of hot go-go areas. So, you know, the dot-com boom be, being an example, China being a good example when it opened, uh, there was a flood of money waiting to go into China, uh, and we saw a flood of disasters uh, in China. You have the, the Sino forests or Sino forests uh, of this world. Which, which you weren't involved whole, in? Which we weren't involved in, thank, thankfully. So there were a lot of blow-ups in China, um, new companies coming to market, a market that's new to the practices of an equity market. And if you compare that with India, which has been an equity market that's been around a long time, uh, and, and you can see the track record of managements over a decade or decades uh, beforehand, you come into a new company and, yes, of course, it's all dressed up to sell, but the reality of what, what lies under the bonnet is can be very different. And, and, and in a similar way, we, we, we'd be fairly wary of new issues across all markets uh, because, again, they've been well coached by their investment bankers. Uh, everything is ready for sale. And only later, uh, typically when, when there's a, an external crisis, do you prove the true metal of management so to see the comfort having having been through well various crashes in my time, the most painful of which was was the Asian crisis in the late nineties, um, and we still hold a a bank we invested in Indonesia before the crisis, which survived the crisis, one of the few that did, uh, and it's all down to strength of balance sheets, and, that, and that's been our real mantra across all portfolios, whether large or small cap particularly small cap, uh, is, is to concentrate on a balance sheet, which gives you that protection. And again, that was the, <laughs> the, the tough lesson of Satyam, which had a, on paper a rock-solid balance sheet. You, you mentioned, obviously, you've been at this a long time, 40 years. Uh, I imagine if, if you look back at what life was like in the 80s, um, do you look back at some of the you know, the easy, easy things that you missed that, that you got caught up in. Oh, I, d I don't know about the easy. In, in a sense, I look back were and you, think... Were you, were you fortunate at the beginning, do you think, in that, in that run from the 80s to the Asian crisis? Do you think it, it was quite smooth running or not? <laughs> I don't think it was ever smooth running, but I think I look back and think, gosh, we were fortunate or lucky. And a lot of that is, is um, 
being able to persist through. Uh, so you invest in a good company, you see the share price go down, you buy more of that good company, um, and and investors give you time for things to work out. So so it's been luckily due to the hopefully the the quality of some our, some of our investors who've understood what we're doing and haven't pulled money away. Um, I think in part it was also due to some of the anomalies that were in markets. In in the early days, people wouldn't buy convertibles, for example, in Asian equity markets. So you could buy convertibles at some stages at discounts to the uh, to the equity value and a higher yield than the equity value, which was amazing. Um, and we bought. We have a large holding still today in Samsung. Uh, uh, which we bought through a, a preferred stock that was on a 50% discount to the ordinary, uh, yet essentially ranking Paris-Passu with a larger, slightly larger dividend. And it's still on a bit of a discount, but, but the discounts narrowed hugely. One thing we've noticed here, and, and I, I promise we won't lament the fact that you've been in the industry as long as you have. We are, we are also looking at other <laughs> aspects. We can edit that bit out if you want. No, 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 rub it in. It does me good. One thing that we, we've seen and noticed on our side, and I was having a long conversation with a, a US-based CIO about this yesterday, was that markets seem more short-term than they ever have. There, there seems to be a even market open to market close mentality rather than a, a longer-term holding period. I know Frank touched upon holding periods at the start. But do you think there is a more short-termist view in markets at the moment? And how do you, as someone who's been around for a bit longer... How do you handle that? Do you see other people falling into traps that you can now avoid? Uh, yes, I, th I think you have a point there. There's, there. There is a lot of short termism. We see it a bit even but to this day, and when we always have to an extent with, with some of our investors who, when you say, yes, we're long term, average holding period, six, seven years, or, or whatever it is, and the investors nod and say, yep, yeah, I understand. And then, of course, the market falls in a quarter, and it, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Why is it falling? <laughs> and, and and things like that. So I, I think there's quite a discord between what investors, when you ask them officially what they think, uh, where I, I, I think 90% of investors was, yes, of course, we're long-term, we understand totally <laughs> what investment is about from the reality uh, that when markets fall, people get very windy, uh, when, of course, in theory, as a long-term investor, providing you've done your homework, you should be looking for the opportunities. So I think there's a lot of pressure on people still to perform uh, and perform over the short term, which causes them to trade short term. Uh, uh, there's a lot more sort of ETF indexed money around, of, of course, that can exacerbate these things. For us, that gives rise to opportunities. Do you think there's there's more pressure on portfolio managers now because of the sort of intense scrutiny in the you know digital world? You can find out anyone's performance in an instant. Do you think it's it's harder now to sort of make your name than it was back in back in your day? Oh, um, is it harder? I think you can still make your name by having a a process that you stick to. Uh, and justified, and that over the long term, of course, we can query what we mean by long term. Uh, you know, 
a one-year performance can be very good, two years, whatever. But having it over the true long term, I think that's that's where you make your name. And, and, and what I've always said to our investors from day one is the only thing I can guarantee you is a poor year of investment. If if only I knew which year it was going to be, <laughs> but we will have a bad year. I can guarantee Just that. Just one? I can <laughs> <laughs> one every five years, probably. But do you think that realism has been um, lost to you? Because you made that point to me last year as well, because we, we spoke because you, you have not been citywide rated for an extended period. You came back in and you made the point that one bad year out of five, to use your example, is realistic. It's Markets won't always work in your favour. Oh, correct. And, and, and a, a really bad one year can drag down your five-year performance. So people think you're terrible over five years, and then it drops off, and they're, oh, actually, they're not so bad after all. That, and it can be a bit of a nonsense. So you really do need to look at a lot more detail behind headline performance figures. Although, of course, all that ultimately matters to most investors is the top-line performance, understandably. And that was Hugh Young. Chris, what did you think? I, again, I mean, I think we said in the intro, he is a very affable man. I think he was very open, very honest. We managed to cover quite a wide array. It's quite hard to say something new on China specifically, but we talked about him being slow on Tencent Alibaba, his concerns about some of the, the differing levels of governance there. And yeah, I mean, it's it's so one of these things where you expect him to have picked one thing to focus on. We managed to float into quite a few areas. What did you make of it? I think the fact that his, his best and worst investment was the same was, was obviously very interesting, but also that he couldn't really draw anything from his mistake. So there are just some pitfalls out there that you're going to make and you're going to be blindsided by. I think that's eating him up a bit. If That's probably inferring slightly, but we did try and push on that as to, well, what did you learn? And he seemed slightly, not annoyed, but he did seem to want to be able to take something away from it. But it's just one of these instances where wrong place, wrong time, got caught out. I mean, he's still going. There is an element of he's survived that. He's had a lot of winners. He doesn't bask in his winners, but he said it's important to reflect on your mistakes as well. I managed to get him onto my favourite topic as always, short-terminism. I talked to a lot of European fund buyers about this, this idea that investment windows are no longer 10 years, 5 years, 3 years. They're now the opening of the market to the close of the market. And it was interesting to hear he thinks that is sort of happening because somebody who's been doing this for so long has seen that changing perception. We've talked about this a lot internally, this idea that is it an investment anymore or is it trading? And again, I might be projecting onto him slightly, but it struck me that he's slightly concerned that that sort of mentality is creeping into Asian equity. Is that unfair? I don't want to cast aspersions over Asian equity and uh, any short-termist views they have in, in the market and, and how and how they invest, but he's very much at the of the belief that a long holding period is a good holding period until, until obviously you need to leave the position which he said they do quickly once uh, once things turn south. It's a good person to get. It's an interesting person because he's covering a, a market with a different perspective. We haven't even done our, our usual boring joke, Frank, that this was actually one of your bookings. So oh. praise where it's due. A good person from a good person. So more of the same, please. That's clearly going to get edited. Thank you so much for listening to Mistakes Were Made with me, Frank Talbot. And me, Chris Slowly. Mm-hmm.